From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, a conversation with Rachel Maddow, recorded live at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. The Rachel Maddow Show is the biggest draw on MSNBC's primetime lineup, tilting against Fox News giant Sean Hannity in the high-stakes battle for cable news viewers. Both have large and obsessive audiences, though Hannity's is bigger, and both have seen double-digit jumps in ratings since Congress launched an impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. That story was roiling when Rachel Maddow made her way onto the stage on crutches at an event sponsored by Acapella Books this past Sunday. Her new book, Blowout, is about the global oil and gas industry. In her words, the richest, most powerful, and most destructive industry on the globe. It ties together some Maddow fixations, Russia, political corruption, the erosion of democratic governance, and double dealing in Ukraine. An audience packed with Rachel Maddow fans at the Fox Theater was primed to hear hear her take on the foreign country that is now the linchpin in the case against Trump. We did have to edit her full address for time, but you can hear it all at gbbnews.org. So the good news is I scheduled the book publication for a time when nothing is going on in the news. It's all very quiet. Um, and you know, we, can, we can talk a little bit tonight about how the oil and gas industry and its influence do link to the current impeachment crisis. But I do also want to say, and this is sort of a giant caveat, that I didn't set out to write a book about oil and gas. I certainly didn't know anything about the oil and gas industry before I started. And people who do know a lot about the industry probably still think I don't know anything. <laughs> um, but I was stuck basically on two things. The more sober one is that I don't know that any of us knew that the fight of our lifetimes was going to be the rule of law and liberal democracy against rising authoritarianism. Um, Over the, yeah, um, you know, over the course of my adult life, you know, they always publish these international freedom indexes where you see the number of democracies in the world rising and the strength of those democracies rising, and what we thought were these defunct forms of authoritarian rule in decline, and that's very quickly flipped. And we have our own challenges as Americans right now where we feel like the underpinnings of our democracy are being directly assailed and are being shown to be weaker than we thought they were, and we're worried about our own democracy. But this is happening at a time when this is also happening around the world. So I wanted to think about not just lamenting the weakness of our democracy and the rise in authoritarian politics even among our fellow Americans. I wanted to think about sort of being a little bit more nuts and bolts about that. You don't just decry something you don't like, you figure out how to beat it. And you don't just praise something that you love, you figure out how to shore it up. And I do think it's worth taking a clear-eyed look at the things that weaken our democracy the ways that our own politicians and our own democratic processes get corrupted and co-opted and turned to perverse purposes other than serving the will of the people. If we want to shore up our democracy, yeah, we need to defend it from people who are trying to destroy it, but we also need to, you know, get out the sandpaper and the bondo and the primer to undo some of the damage that's already been done by corrosive influences and figure out ways to rein those in and hold them back. So I wanted to get specific about that. Um, The other part of it for me, which is maybe the goofier part, is that I was, 
if you've seen this show that I do on TV, you might have noticed that I'm a little bit hung up on Russia. <laughs> no apologies. Um, and I realized that as much as we've covered that story and as fascinated as I remain in it and as, li as, as live an issue as I still believe that it is, I was really stuck on one piece of the story that I couldn't get, which was the motive force for Russia attacking our election in 2016 and for doing it the way they did. I mean, it was kind of a weird collection of tactics, right? Like a guy who like does catering and also runs mercenary forces for the Kremlin, sets up a really depressing sounding social media factory in St. Petersburg and those people pretend to be Americans. It was a, it was a weird collection of um, tactics. And, I mean, as far as we can tell, Russia also believed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. One of my favorite details in the new Senate Intelligence Committee report that just came out is the word from the Internet Research Agency, the sort of troll farm, that they literally popped champagne on election night because they were so shocked that their plan had worked. They didn't know it was coming. But had Hillary Clinton become president, as they expected... Imagine what she would have behaved, <laughs> what she would have done as president toward them if she became president after they threw all of these crazy MacGyver tactics at her, not even barely covering their tracks through the election to try to install her opponent and to try to undermine her as president. And so it was a hugely risky thing for them to do. Why was it worth it? Well, I think part of the answer is Desperation. I think understanding Russia's motive force here, for me, the thing that started to make it make sense for the first time was when I finally figured out that their economy is so terrible. Um, Russia is a country of 150 million people. For context, uh, Germany's like 85 million people, the UK, 70 million people, Italy, 60 million people, South Korea's 50 million people. Russia's 150 million people. Right? Putting a man in space, the other gigantic nuclear superpower that within living memory managed a globe-spanning uh, set of, of communist satellite states. Right? Russia is a, is, a, is a big country, largest landmass on earth, 150 million people. They've got an economy smaller than Italy's, smaller than South Korea's, with triple the population. And it turns out that's because their economy is a pogo stick. It's only got one thing in it, which is oil and gas. And it turns out that is a terrible thing to build your economy on. So I feel like that's the first thing, that's kind of step one. The other thing that turns out to be immediately really important is the realization that the oil and gas industry, for all the things they're surprisingly not that good at, like cleaning up, cleaning up after themselves or sailing to Alaska, um, they, they are actually very good at getting governments of all shapes and sizes to serve their interests in a way that often tends to hobble the ability of that government to do a good job serving any other purpose. I mean, setting aside whatever might be bad for your country in terms of having oil and gas production there, and I write about that a lot in the book, um, what we see over and over again is regardless of what's going on with the environmental cost or the economic cost or the political cost of having oil and production where you live, oil and gas production where you live, what we see over and over again is that where oil revenues flow, government tends to suffer. And that's true even when we're talking about tons of oil revenues. The founding energy minister of Saudi Arabia says, all in all, I wish we'd discovered water. 
The founder of OPEC told an American academic named Terry Carl, he told her that as far as he can tell, oil is the excrement of the devil. You know, when the founder of OPEC tells you that oil is not only poop, but the devil's poop, it's like, oh, there's definitely a book there somewhere. I don't know what the book is going to be about, but that detail is going to be there. You're listening to Rachel Maddow on the origins of her new book, Blowout. It's her take on how the oil and gas industry influences democracy in the U.S. and abroad. The book is currently number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. The host of MSNBC's The Rachel Maddow Show was recorded live at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. I did a a book tour event earlier this week in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was freaking fantastic. 3,000 people in Tulsa to hear me talk about oil and gas. I was like, is this real? Is this happening? Oklahoma is a state that has had its government in many ways captured and, and overpowered by its oil and gas interests. And there's no shame in that. It literally happens everywhere on earth where oil and gas are produced in quantity, except when they are up against the most robust democracies imaginable. But when Oklahoma in recent years found itself facing an unusual set of crises because of that, including man-made earthquakes, but not only that, Oklahomans decided to respond to that by flipping the light switch on their democracy and by making a difference. And when Oklahoma school teachers, many of them Republican voters, took over the Oklahoma state capitol, and then when they didn't get what they needed, came right back until they did get what they needed, when they changed their state government's slavish devotion to all things oil and gas so that they could get their schools open more than four days a week again, so that they could stop the earthquakes, so that they could get decent regulation that would allow the oil and gas industry to still exist but would let it take its boot off the neck of that state and its budget. That to me was a, an aha moment because Oklahoma did not become an environmental paradise. Oklahoma did not flip blue. Oklahoma is still a red state and there's still oil and gas there, but the people of Oklahoma stood up and said, we are not going to allow you to capture our governance in the way that you have and we are going to use direct democracy and demands of our elected officials till we change this thing. And they did it like a light switch. But I will tell you, if that can happen in Oklahoma, it can happen flipping anywhere on earth. and so I'll just, I'll just close with this. Um, I think that the climate activists of the generation younger than mine and younger than that are going to win. The scientists and the young people are leading already. They're right. They, are, they have won the argument, and they will ultimately win the fight. But when climate change and this new, robust, inspiring, creative, scientifically-based climate activism wins, and we end up making a change away from oil and gas because we have to, we're all very focused, I think, on what that might mean environmentally in terms of saving the planet, making the planet habitable for future generations. The one thing that I, I am sort of trying to raise a little bit of a flag about now that I want us to think about as Americans is that if we do that, and I think it's, it's when we do that, first of all, the speed at which we get there and the ambitiousness 
the, the ambition that we apply to that decision when we're finally ready to make that as a country, that will depend in part by how captured and co-opted our government continues to be by this industry. And so if you want that decision to be made fast, reigning in this industry now will help us make that de democratic decision faster and better when we get there. The really sobering thing for me, though, um, is that I, I do think that we have overestimated the technological capability of the oil and gas industry. I mean, they really do just use paper towels when they have oil spills. That's all they got. Um, they're not mission to Mars guys, no matter what they tell you or what their ads look like. I think we've overestimated that. I think we have underestimated their geopolitical impact. And when it comes to the tipping point, when it comes to the moment when we and all the other big economies on earth do turn off oil and gas and instead turn to different types of fuel that aren't going to end the human habitability of this planet, countries are going to change. When they lose their market share and they lose all their money and they lose the power that they've got, it will be important for us to recognize that they are propping up and have been for generations propping up despotic and terrible governments all over the world. And when those industries stop being that kind of an influence, those countries are going to change. And I believe at that moment that the boundaries of countries will change. I mean, I, it's, going to be a big it's going to be a big geopolitical thing. And for us as Americans anticipating that, I do think it's a little bit scary. I think we should get real about it because I think it'll happen. And in this time, when we're worried about our own democracy and we know that democracy globally is in decline, and authoritarianism is on the rise in its various forms. And we like to think of ourselves as the city on the hill, as the exemplar of democratic, small d, for the people governance. At the time when we get to that tipping point and bad governments around the world start falling because of the collapse of the oil and gas industry as a geopolitical anchor on them, we are going to need to be in good shape. Our democracy is going to need to be strong, we are not only going to be able, needing to be helping our brothers and sisters around the world, we are going to have to be a city on the hill. We are going to have to be an exemplar of why democratic government is what you want and what everybody deserves. And so we need to take care of ourselves here at home, both because it's what we need for now, but I think it's also what we need for that moment that is coming when we will need to lead the world in terms of government being by the people and for the people and those being inalienable rights no matter where you live on this globe. When the wind comes sweeping down the plain And the waving wheat can sure smell Rachel Maddow there, riling fans up at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. After a short break, I'll sit down with the MSNBC host to talk about her new book, Blowout, her theories on how the oil and gas industry undercuts democracy, and what she learned about impeachment from reporting on Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought with Rachel Maddow, recorded live. This is GPP. When we say no! 
I'm Virginia Prescott, back with On Second Thought from GPB, and Rachel Maddow recorded live at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. Maddow joined MSNBC as a primetime host 11 years ago. Her critics on the right are legion, and even left-leaning publications have labeled her conspiratorial, or the queen of collusion, for her breathless explanation of the dark forces targeting democracy. To her fans, she's a heroine of Trump-era resistance, a Rhodes Scholar turned guidepost for a turbulent time. Meadows' audience has boomed since the election of Donald Trump and has been further juiced by the impeachment inquiry into the president. Maddow burrowed into an earlier White House scandal for her Peabody Award-nominated podcast, Bagman. That followed a story overshadowed by efforts to impeach Richard Nixon, the criminal investigation of Vice President Spiro Agnew. Spiro Agnew was a literal laughingstock when the 1968 presidential campaign got underway. But as much as the Democrats might have wanted to keep laughing at him, Agnew soon became sort of a rock star on the right. He was blunt. He was politically incorrect. He loved trashing liberals and the press and minorities. He shot down hecklers at his events with glee. He described them as spoiled brats who never had a good spanking. Somewhere somebody failed you. Your churches must not have gotten through to you because you don't even know anything about the golden rule. Mata was in Atlanta to talk about her new book, Blowout, at an event sponsored by Acapella Books. The timing of the book is a publisher's dream. While it's about global impacts of the oil and gas industry, it sent Maddow on book tour just as fans were grasping for her response to the House impeachment inquiry unfolding daily in the news. They were there in raucous force when I spoke with Maddow on stage about what she learned while making Bagman. In particular, the Maryland DA investigators and Department of Justice officials come across in the podcast as heroes. So I asked about their investigation and the contemporary DOJ's role in the Trump inquiry. It was, for me, uh, eye-opening and hugely moving to watch the way the nobility and the bravery and the unstinting independence of those prosecutors who went after Agnew, the way that unfolded against the kind of pressure that they got. The U.S. attorney who prosecuted Agnew, Agnew was a, a, he had been the governor of Maryland, um, and he was a Republican. The U.S. attorney who prosecuted Agnew was also a Maryland Republican. His brother was a sitting U.S. senator who had basically been installed in that seat by Agnew. Nixon and Agnew did what they need to do to get him in that seat. One of his um, other immediate relatives, another brother of his, was actually working for one of the firms that was participating in Agnew's crimes. So he's serving subpoenas on one of his brother's firms. And his brother in the Senate is getting leaned on by the president, by the president's White House chief of staff, by the vice president himself, by George H.W. Bush, who was the head of the Republican Party at the time. They're all going in to the senator who owes his seat in the Senate to Agnew to say, hey, go lean on your little brother and get this taken care of. And George Bell, the U.S. attorney, just does not blink. And he leads these brave young prosecutors against this incredible pressure campaign. And Agnew is out there on the stump denouncing Justice Department officials by name and denouncing the media for ever covering any of these things against him. And they just put it together step by step. And that attorney general, Republican Elliot Richardson, 
will not be pushed around and, and, and shelters those prosecutors from the worst of the pressure that he is getting from the White House, and he sees it through. And the, just the civic nobility of that, the unflappability of these guys to get all of this pressure from all of these people who, as far as I can tell, should have been prosecuted for obstruction of justice for doing it, to get all of that pressure and not let it affect them one whit and to see it through to the end, I just think, oh my God, do we have those people in the Justice Department now? I don't know. We haven't had Justice Department whistleblowers. The thing I worry about the most in terms of the underpinnings of our democracy is that the Justice Department will become a tool to punish the president's enemies and to shelter and reward his friends. That is a clear and present danger, I believe, and I think that is the most serious and most immediate threat we will have um, to the sort of, to the sort of, uh, toward the sort of government that we're worried we might be slipping toward. I spoke with Maddow just days after Marie Ivanovich's closed-door testimony to Congress. In statements that she made public, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine said that her moves to curb corruption in Ukraine's energy and political spheres made her a target of unfounded conspiracies and got her fired. I asked Maddow for her read on the dramatic testimony of the diplomat suddenly at the center of the impeachment story. The thing that was really moving for me about her statement was just the way she talked about the way our government ought to work and how our government ought to stand up for American principles and how she fully understood that part of her job as a foreign service officer is to implement the president's priorities. She does not have any problem with that at all. The president sets foreign policy. For her to talk about the way it's supposed to work in contrast with the way it has been perverted and to know that when the president was on that call for which he's now being impeached, where he is asking the Ukrainian government for help against the Democrats in 2020 for something he can use against Joe Biden. When he is on the call and he says to that foreign leader, our ambassador there, the woman, she was bad news. She's going to go through some things. Mike Pompeo, the head of the State Department, was on that call listening to the president say that about her. Mike Pompeo had just sent his deputy to go to Ukraine to fire her on the president's orders. And his deputy, John Sullivan, according to Marie Ivanovich, told her in that conversation, you did nothing wrong. I am not firing you for cause. I am firing you because the president wants to. Now, the Secretary of State was on the call where the president is threatening her to a foreign leader. I mean, for him to be overseeing that, for the people he is responsible for protecting, I mean, when you're the Secretary of State, it is not the same thing as being the, 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 the Secretary of Transportation. You are responsible for a Foreign Service Corps that serves all over the world, in, in, including in incredibly dangerous places. And you watch over them, you have their backs, you protect their families, you get them out of harm's way if need be, and you can call in hell and high water to do it. And you have that kind of power because you are seen as America's chief diplomat. You are America's voice of our foreign policy, and that foreign service depends on you and some, sometimes for their life. For him to be there on that call and then not say anything about it for two weeks, given what he overheard in that moment, I think it is impossible for him to stay on as Secretary of State. Um, but it is just a, it's a, it's a political science story. It's a, it's a playground life lesson story that if you make a threat and you cannot follow through on that threat, then you have failed both as a bully and a leader. And when 
Mike Pompeo told everybody in the State Department, including Marie Ivanovich, you cannot testify. And some of them said, okay, yes, sir. And some of them said, really? I will testify because this is a matter for congressional oversight and I'm going to respect a congressional subpoena and you can try to stop me, but I'm going. You're listening to Rachel Maddow talking about her new book, Blowout, her now number one best-selling book about the oil and gas industry's impact on global democracy. There's been plenty of reporting on Yovanovitch's record of fighting double-dealing in Ukraine's energy industry, a multi-billion dollar font of corruption that has enriched its source, Russia's state gas company, and how thwarting those deals put her in the crosshairs. A blowout follows other reporting on how the extraction industry impacts governance across the world. I asked her about that on stage at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And this is the case that you make in the book that the government, the oil and gas industry finds it much easier to deal with autocrats, with monarchies, with despots. So can you tell us how that advantage plays out? Yeah, I mean, there's two things at work there. And, and one is just that money can make good people do bad things. And so to see, I mean, it's, I think it's worth following you know, the Morgan Stanleys and the Skadden Arpses and the, the American PR firms who help grease some of these skids um, for bad actors around the world. When they went after Timoshenko the way that she did, what Virginia is describing here is this, uh, this, this effort that Paul Manafort led, and a lot of this was litigated in his federal trial, to make the lock her up, vindictive prosec political prosecution of Timoshenko look good from a Western perspective. And, uh, you know, American law firms and PR firms were absolutely happy to take really big checks to do that. I do think that the solution to that is transparency. Um, one of the things that the book lands on is a little piece of the Dodd-Frank Act, the mm -hmm. Wall Street Reform Act, um, where one of the sections of Dodd-Frank, it's a very sexy name, it's called Section 1504. <laughs> I know. Um, the, the whole idea of Section 1504 is that oil companies need to declare their bribes, basically. <laughs> I mean, technically bribery is illegal, but they need to disclose all of their payments to foreign governments, which means they need to disclose their bribes. And while bribery is also illegal, we know that the bribery statutes are not working. Otherwise, you know, countries that discover oil and gas um, would instead produce richer economies that serve their people instead of producing, you know, presidential sons who collect Michael Jackson memorabilia by the by the, by the boatload. The need to just disclose those payments seems like such a simple little thing, seems like almost like an accounting trick. It's the one time in the whole book where, and the one time, I, as far as I can tell, in his entire life biography, that anybody has ever seen Rex Tillerson get red in the face and visibly angry was fighting against this thing because it's so key to the way that ExxonMobil and the other Western majors do their work around the world that they need to bribe foreign governments. And if they disclose it, we'll all know it and then those damn activists will stop them from doing this thing at least without shame. And that stuff is eternal. I mean, knowing what the bad guys do doesn't work if they have no shame. We're learning that in our politics right now. 
getting caught no matter is no longer the, the start of, you know, getting caught is no longer the start of getting in trouble is actually what it turns out to. Um, but in the business world, getting caught, people knowing what you're doing does expose you to all sorts of activism, including shareholder activism and potential regulation to rein in your bad behavior. And it, it works. It works all over the world. So you're describing the thugs that run Rosneft. This is the uh, this is the, one of the premier oil and it's gas the, companies. It's basically the state-run oil company. Gazprom and, and Rosneft. This is one of the heads, the head, Igor Sechin. He's head of Rosneft, an unsmiling thug. You write, when Sechin did smile, he looked like a fairy tale ogre who had just swallowed a small, tasty child. <laughs> As a slight indulgence there. <laughs> but these characters, and this is Gazprom and Rosneft, right, running the show, they're basically operating as an ATM for the Kremlin, right? But they push out BP. They allegedly poison the head of BP to get him out of their country. Also, you know, Shell Oil is kind of, the, their assets are sold at fire sale they price. They come up with a fake environmental bill of attainder to grab Shell's assets and take them from them. Yuko Soil as well. Now, that's actually a homegrown prospect, but, you know, it was a threat to them because they were transparent. So why does, Re what does Rex Tillerson do right? What does ExxonMobil do right to create a partnership that works with, with the Kremlin? So, the, I mean, I, the short answer to that is I don't know entirely. But, and I think that I want there to be a Rex Tillerson era. I want somebody to write the story of what it is that Rex Tillerson and Putin came to understand about each other. Because there was something going on there that Rex didn't fall prey to the other things that the other industry majors did. And as, as, as Russia has sort of gone through its Putin-era economic non-development, what Putin decided was that he didn't necessarily want to do what Russia would need to do in order to have a diversified economy. Russia floats on a sea of oil and gas. They have a ton of oil and gas. They've always had that. He also knows that Russia's oil and gas can be used as a weapon to control other countries, and so that's very attractive to him. But he needs to be able to control those assets in order to do it. You can't have independent-run companies who aren't following the will of the president. The president needs to be able to deploy all those assets himself. He didn't want to allow a diversified economy because in order for Russia to have a diversified economy, you'd need a functioning legal system. You'd need property rights. You'd need the hope of economic mobility. You'd need a relatively non-corrupt system that, to handle everything from, from permitting to elections. You need that in order to have economic diversity and economic development. None of those things are things that Vladimir Putin could allow. And so he instead allowed Russia to basically develop as a petrostate. He then brought all oil and gas assets in Russia under his control so he could wield Russia's oil and gas as an international weapon, which he has done, which is a large part of the story of Ukraine and how we get to this circumstance that the president is in right now. But the consequence of that for Russia is that their oil and gas companies are run by these child-eating ogres. They're not run, I mean, the guy who was really good at running an oil company in Russia, like a really technologically adept, um, you know, uh, sort of Western standards um, 
ambitious, creative, technologically driven oil company. That's Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who they locked up and took his company. You can't be good at running anything. You just have to serve Putin. And so he's got all these guys who he like did judo with who are running these companies. Gazprom is the Russian natural gas company. Under the guy who runs that, whose name is Alexei Miller, which is not a very Russian sounding name, I know. His name is Miller. It's memorable because he has built himself a palace. He calls it a palace. It's called Millerhof. <laughs> I was like, dude, like, you don't need to name everything after yourself, especially if your name like, doesn't fit the palais. <laughs> anyway, under Alexei Miller, Gazprom has lost, I believe, on the order of $300 billion in market capitalization. It's a disaster. Forbes calls it the worst-run company on the planet. But Alexei Miller has job security because these, he's, he's looking out for number one, uh, which means that he has, made, he has put Gazprom at the disposal of the president, both in terms of stealing from it and doing whatever Putin wants. So they have a terribly decrepit oil and gas industry. They need Western majors to be able to tap their own increasingly hard-to-get oil and gas. They can't use Western majors because of their bad behavior, which has resulted in them being sanctioned. And so what they desperately, desperately, desperately need, to the point where they'll do almost anything unbelievably risky to get it, is they need out from Western sanctions so that they can get Western majors to help them drill because oil and gas is the only thing in their economy. And that's the story of what I believe happened to us. I'm Virginia Prescott. We'll be back after a short break to talk with Rachel Maddow and get her take on the origins of Russian troll farms, Hunter Biden's board seat, and the resignation of Shep Smith. This is On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with On Second Thought from GPB and Rachel Maddow, recorded live at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. Maddow first got national attention on the short-lived Air America network. That was the left's attempt to counter the dominance of right-wing radio. Tucker Carlson gave Maddow her first TV break as a progressive foil for his MSNBC show, Tucker. That show ran when shouting matches between liberals and conservatives were a cable news staple. Now those voices are on different networks, and Maddow star Rose on MSNBC. Maddow's new book, Blow Up, portrays Russian President Vladimir Putin as a desperate and paranoid leader, made more so when governments across the world sanctioned Russia for annexing the Crimean Peninsula, kneecapping Russia's plans for global energy supremacy. Maddow's depiction of the Soviet illegal spy program, a Cold War holdover, is like other accounts, an image of expensive ineptitude with little return. These so-called illegals posing as suburban Americans look nothing like the slick operators on the FX show, The Americans. Maddow pulls from U.S. intelligence investigations and the Mueller report to track a less expensive, more effective method of destabilizing the U.S., troll farms. I asked her what led Putin to that tactic when we spoke on stage at the Fox. Well, I, I think that, you know, it's interesting. I first started thinking about this um, around the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? He, Putin responds to this, as you know, by invading Ukraine and taking a piece of it and occupying the eastern part of that country. The world is horrified by this and they put these sanctions in. At that time, what's happening in terms of 
American reaction to that is you got this interesting bipartisan thing. John McCain went to Ukraine at the time and he came back and he did the rounds of the late night comedy shows and he coined one of his John McCain isms where he talked about Russia as a country, a, a, a gas station masquerading as a country. <laughs> and I was like, I don't really get it, but I, li- I like that. I don't, it kind of stuck with me. And then President Obama and Vice President Biden, and this again is a little bit from what I read from the book, both talked about what Russia had done here in terms of Russian weakness. And then, do you remember, you might have heard the story about how Vladimir Putin and Angela Merkel once met in one of their early meetings, and Merkel um, has a fear of dogs, and Putin pulled this like short man power play thing with her where he brought in a dog and I mean, not, I don't think it was a dog that was going to bite her, but an aggressive and intimidating dog and let it loose to come at her to start their meeting. And that's sort of, re- it's been recounted a number of times to sort of give you a measure of what kind of guy Putin is. But Angela Merkel's take on that was not like, you know, wow, what a cretin. Angela Merkel's take on it was, yeah, this is all they have. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a ch- chapter title in the book. But all of those ideas and the lameness of the Russian spies who are all squatting in New Jersey and Boston, right? all of that is some of the same story, which is that Russia doesn't have very many ways to project power or to get what they want from other countries around the world. They don't have anything to offer economically. They don't have anything to offer in terms of their political system. Their military, while they have invested a lot in it, they don't have much to offer there. And so they get what they want by sabotage, by cheating, um, and by innovating essentially guerrilla tactics against other people's democracies to try to level them, to try to undermine Western standards and Western aspirations, because they want the world to be such that nobody's in a position to sanction them for their bad behavior, because everybody else is just as bad as them. And so when they try to make us lose faith in our own democracy, when they try to make us, you know, right... Literally right now with what's going on in Syria, Russian state TV is saying anybody who makes an alliance with America will end up this way. You see what's happening to the Kurds in Syria? That's because they didn't ally with us. And with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, our ally, if you ally with the Americans, you ally with the West, they will always let you down because the West is corrupt and the West has no real friends and they will use you and walk away. And to the extent that we bolster that narrative by our own behavior, Russia's delighted. But even if we didn't bolster their, that narrative with our behavior, they'd still say it. Because they do not want there to be a Western-led liberal order that holds them accountable for their actions. Because the only grounds on which they compete is sabotage and undermining those around them. Got to get some audience questions and some current Please. stuff in here. This book is very much about the damage done by insidious corruption. It's hobbled the economy and really the prospects of, of Russia, which is a terribly sad story. But it, let's look at another case. It was not illegal for Hunter Biden, for example, to take a seat on the board of Burisma. $50,000 a month job, by the way, which he had no qualifications for. So... You know, does this fall in that this is the way of doing business that really has to change? Well, this is, I mean, the, that board, like other 
boards of that kind in that part of the world were always shopping for Americans of all stripes to decorate themselves with so as to appear to have international approval. Now, the funny thing about natural gas in Ukraine is that Russia essentially created a La Brea tar pit in Ukraine which is a natural gas industry that is corrupt by design. I mean, Ukraine uses a lot of natural gas. It, until the Nord Stream pipelines, has been also the, the geographic place through which Russia has to pipe its natural gas through in order to get that natural gas to Europe. And Russia wanted to make sure that they were going to control the people who were in charge of that or taking any money out of that, and so they installed their own sort of corrupt henchmen to do it. But one of the bank, one of the sort of knock-on benefits of that for them, which they've used over and over and over again with Timoshenko, they're running the exact same thing using the exact same guys against Biden now, is that anybody who gets anywhere near that tar pit ends up covered in it. And so even if, like Timoshenko, you are there to clean it up, you are there to say, this is a mess, this deal is arranged by the Kremlin simply to hurt us, and we should... We should protect ourselves and not take it, what they were able to do is come back to her and say like, oh, you were messing in the Ukrainian natural gas world? Well, you were obviously corrupt then because look at how corrupt that area is. And so whether you're sitting on the board because you're put there because they want to pay you in order to decorate their country with or their company with your name, or whether you are trying to fix it, which frankly is what Hunter Biden's dad was trying to do, they will say just by proximity to that mess, if they can muddy the waters enough, if they can sort of catch you enough in the crossfire, just by your proximity to that field, they will tar you as yourself corrupt. They do it everywhere. And oil and gas gives them the most direct place to do it, direct way to do it, especially in the former Soviet sphere, especially in Ukraine, which Putin would frankly like to own the entirety of. And it's to see it being rerun using Paul Manafort and Dmitry Firtash again just years after they did it to this opposition politician in Ukraine, to see them doing it exactly the same way five years later, it's just mind-bending. All right, I'm going to try and wind a couple of questions together, and you choose how you want to answer. I'll give shorter right. answers. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So, how do you maintain a positive attitude when the news is so negative? I have the greatest job on earth, which is that I am paid to read the news and think about it and decide what I think is important about it, and then I get paid to say what I think about it um, and to organize it in a way that makes sense and is hopefully constructive. And that is therapy. I mean, everybody else who's paying attention to the news has to do other things for money, right? You have to do some other thing for the rest of your day. And on top of that, you are reading the news and trying to make sense of it and trying to be constructive and organized about it. I only have to do that one thing. So I feel like I actually have it easier than everybody else who's just trying to be a good citizen. You're listening to my conversation with MSNBC host and best-selling author Rachel Maddow. Devoted fans consider her to be a kind of oracle of the left, but she counts prominent conservatives among her fans, including Pat Buchanan and the late Fox News chair Roger Ailes. Tucker Carlson says he watches Maddow when he gets off the air, suggesting more cross-pollination in real life than the blood sport portrayed on cable TV. I asked questions submitted by the audience at the Fox Theater when we spoke, including whether Shep Smith, who announced his resignation from Fox, would be welcome at MSNBC. 
Shep is somebody who I have a, a lot of respect for, um, and I would call him a friend. It's not like we hang out. I, we have a friendly, collegial relationship like I do with a number of people, actually, who work at Fox. Um, <laughs> no, really. Um, I don't know why he left, and I don't know the circumstances under which he left, and I will not speculate. But I do think that it is a sad thing for Fox that they are losing him, and it is a bad thing for the country that they are losing him. Because as much hate he took, as he took from some of the opinion hosts on Fox, the primetime hosts on Fox, and from, I'm sure, a good segment of the Fox viewership, and as much hate as he took from the White House, from the president personally and all this stuff, the fact remained that for at least an hour a day and in every breaking news circumstance, there was good old Shep Smith doing real live journalism without fear or favor on the Fox News Network. And he's really good at it. And he's a real journalist. And he was the anchor of that news division. And I, the, the reporters at Fox News do real reporting. I cite Fox News reporting on my show all the time. It's a, they, do have a pretty, a, they do have a distinct divide between their news division and their sort of primetime and morning hosts. And so to the extent that Shep was the best of that and the sort of captain of that team, and he had an hour of their real estate every day, the, I, I think the Fox News audience was better off with that than they will be without that. Mm. And so I'm sad that he has left there. But wherever he wants to work um, next, if he wants to keep doing this work, I, I, my guess would be that MSNBC would be beating other people out of the line to get him. We have a, a number of questions asking, you know, people look to you to be an oracle of sorts, you know. Um, who's going to win the presidential nomination for Democrats? Who's, you know, what's going to happen to Mike Pompeo? A lot of those kind of questions. How does it feel to be in that position, to be looked at as somebody who we just want to know? I don't know any secret information. <laughs> I really don't. Um, I get credit for that sometimes, like... Uh, you know, tell me, so this whole thing about the president's tax returns, in the end, is he going to be handing them over? I don't know. Let's watch. Um, and I sort, of, I sort of feel that way about, about all of it. it uh, I'm, I'm flattered that people believe that I know something secret. Um, I, I really don't. And even though every once in a while I, tr I will give you like a prediction, like, watch this, I bet this one's going pear-shaped, um, I'm, I'm not always right in my predictions. I'm not a good pundit, and I'm not a good predictor. I'm just sort of watching closely what's going on and trying to All make right, sense of it. All right, this is a journalism. What do you think will be the long-lasting effect on journalism from the attacks from this administration on your profession? I think that the attacks from this president on the profession of journalism are waking people up to the fact that journalism is a civic responsibility that we all need to support. <laughs> that not just individual journalists, but journalism itself needs defending. That while there can be propaganda that is made up stuff that is masquerading as news, actual journalism and fact-based reporting is not fake and is not only not fake, it's the special sauce that we need in order to make democratic decisions, left, right, or center. And for me, and maybe this addresses some of the giggles that I heard when I said I have a 
positive collegial relationship with some people at Fox. For me, I mean, I, I know that every president hates the press and every president complains about the press. What's going on now with this president is different. Actually, the only other mod politician I've ever seen try to undermine journalism writ large the way our president is now is Spiro Agnew. It failed for Agnew. Um, we don't yet know if it's going to fail for this president. But I do feel like a consequence for those of us in the business is that we really need to resist efforts to turn us against each other. And that there's lots of different ways to be a responsible member of the fact-based journalistic community. And there are rivalries, and there's different shades, and there's different ways that we approach it. But you know what? I will, I will stand up for my colleagues in journalism. I hope that they will stand up for me. The effort to try to turn us into part of the fight where some of us are enemies and some of us are allies uh, shouldn't work because journalism is neutral in terms of its political impact other than the fact that we need it for our democracy. And so, if you do not already support your local public radio station, support your public radio station. If you've got a kid or a grandkid or a niece or a nephew who is in a school that does not have a student paper, get together with some other relatives of kids in that school and figure out a way to endow a student paper. We need to grow investigative journalists by the bushel in this country. And we need to do it in a hurry. So that, I mean, if you take away one thing from this discussion, um, especially the, the two of us coming from the two different parts of the journalistic world that we come through, I will say if, if you're thinking about some way to try to change your life to advance some of the things that you got thinking about from being at this event, think about ways that you can, as an American, strengthen our democratic institutions, including the free press. Can you do something concrete today? Can you and your family, or you and other people who you work with on other social issues, can you do something that strengthens our institutions? Please think about journalism as one of the institutions that we need as a country, and think about concrete ways that you can help. Please join me in thanking Rachel Maddow for being here tonight. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Oh, I love you, Atlanta. I love this town. Thank you so much. Rachel Maddow there with a rousing defense of the fourth estate in front of exuberant fans at the Fox Theater. Maddow was on a sold-out eight-city book tour for her new book, Blowout. You can hear her full address to the audience, which we had to edit, and find a link to see photos of the event from photographer Rachel Joyce, all at gbbnews.org. Thanks to On Second Thought producers Priya Mahadevan, Amelia Brock, and LaRaven Taylor. To engineer Jesse Nicewanger, senior producer Amy Kylie, and GPB's vice president of news, Mary Lynn Ryan. Special thanks for help from Allison Hashimoto. We're also grateful to Lisa Marie Malavos and the staff at the Fox Theater, and to Frank Reese and Allison Law at Acapella Books. We use Hugh Jackman singing Oklahoma from the cast recording at the 1999 Broadway revival of Oklahoma, Eamon Tobin, the theme to FX's The American series, Rachel Maddow favorite Fugazi, and the Russian Hell March song from The Internet. I'm Virginia Prescott. You can visit the On Second Thought archives to hear more interviews with a number of authors featured on our show. This is Georgia Public Broadcasting.